0: a Gridlock Break, a no-labels podcast featuring one-hour conversations with elected officials and thought leaders from across the political spectrum. Tune in weekly to hear insightful and nonpartisan perspectives on how America can solve our toughest problems. Today, we will hear from Lawrence Summers, an economist who previously served as Secretary of the Treasury under President Clinton and Director of the National Economic Council under President Obama. He joins us to talk about the COVID-19 relief bill and his concerns that Washington may finally be pushing the limits of what we can spend without spurring inflation and other negative outcomes. Let's listen in. Larry is on. Yes.
1: Hi, Larry. Good to good to see you. This is Bill Galston. Uh, you know, you are... You, you are the paradigm of a person for whom no introduction is needed. So I'm going to give you a much smaller one than you you deserve. But put it as simply as possible. Larry Summers is an economist who's j- done just about everything that a star economist to do can do. Your know, former Treasury Treasury Secretary, your know, former head of the National Economic Council, former president of. Uh, Harvard University, former chief economist of the World Bank, and in 1993, which is, I believe, uh, the day we the year we first met, uh, Larry won the John Bates Clark Award uh, for the, the outstanding economist under the age of 40. Uh, so uh, you can't you can't do any better, uh, and I'm going to start off with a handful of questions, the gist of which Larry is is aware of already before before turning it over to the audience for questions. Uh, The first set of questions I'll pose have to do with the issue of inflation. Uh, The second has to do with Larry's thoughts on the appropriate way to think about infrastructure and public investment. Larry famously said that the federal government is a lousy venture capitalist. Uh, the question is, you know, the question is whether he thinks the federal government can be a good investor and if so, how? So let's begin at the beginning. Uh, Larry, I want to start with your recent and much discussed Washington Post op-ed. Uh which is expressing concern about the size and scope of the proposed COVID-19 relief bill. A few years ago, uh, you were warning of the possibility of secular stagnation and urging governments to do more to break out of it. So uh, tell us please, why have you decided to raise these concerns now? What has changed?
0: So Bill, let me just say, uh, I don't think I've addressed the no no labels group, certainly not in a long time. I just wanna say that I very much uh, am enthusiastic about the impulse uh, behind uh, your work. And I think those of you who are part of the group, uh, those like Nancy and Bill in leadership roles, those who support uh, the work are doing a very important uh, thing. And one of the things I've learned over time is that the transition from inconceivable to inevitable can be very rapid in Washington. And that what a great deal of the kind of work you do, the kind of work I do, basically nothing's happening. And then all of a sudden the configuration changes and there's an opening and something substantial happens. So it's a mistake to kind of judge progress on a month to month uh, basis. And I, for one, really appreciate uh, your efforts. I am in a bit of a whipsaw position. Um, I have been of the view for the last dozen years until about a year ago that um, the macroeconomic configuration changed, that there was a lot of savings, that there was for a variety of structural reasons, not so much private investment demand, that that's why interest rates were so low and that that posed a variety of challenges, inflated asset prices because of the low interest rates, a sluggish economy that exacerbated inequality and that we needed a more expansionary approach to fiscal policy as one part of the response. I think I was right in that view. I think I still am right in uh, that uh, view. But I find myself like um, an advocate of an increase in minimum wages, who had been pounding the table for years that the minimum wage really ought to go up. It ought to go up from $7 maybe to $15. And then all of a sudden, Somebody in the government is proposing, and it looks like the idea is catching steam, to raise the minimum wage to $22 for the next two years, because after all, the minimum wage has been too low, and we've made a mistake for keeping the minimum wage too low. And at one level, the broad sentiment is right. At another level, public policy has to be evaluated in terms of the details and in terms of the specifics. And I, it's my belief that spending $2.8 trillion, 14% of GDP, blowing the deficit up to three quarters of the World War II level without spending a penny on investments that are categorized as build back better or investments that will prepare us to better meet uh, China is not a prudent or responsible thing for the United States uh, to do. I am the first to agree that we need to provide full relief for the disruptions associated with COVID. If you look at wages and salaries, they're running $20 billion a month below an optimistic assessment of the pre-COVID trend. That number is falling because the economy is growing fast. 20 times 12 doubled because of poor targeting or something, is $480 billion relative to our $2.8 trillion package. If you look at uh, levels of disposable income, total household incomes received by households, the household income of the bottom fifth of the population, according to Goldman Sachs, will be up by 50. 5-0% 5-0% between the, between the first quarter of 2020 and the first quarter of 20, uh, 2021, or between January of 2020 and January of 2021. So no COVID in uh, the first figure. Surely to generously meet all the relief needs, we do not need to, um, we, do not, we do not need to be spending anything like uh, what we are spending. Does this, what are the costs of this? Uh, one kind of cost I already referred to is resources that have opportunity costs. Somehow resources spent on all of this sooner or later in some way are resources that could have been spent on repairing the country's infrastructure or containing uh, climate change, were directly and in a targeted way, uh, fighting uh, poverty. The other concern that I have is the one you explicitly referred to in your question, Bill, which is uh, inflation. And I should preface this by saying, there have been people who thought the Reagan deficits would cause inflation. There are people who thought that the Clinton mid-90s expansion would cause inflation. There are people who thought that the big increases in the Fed balance sheet would cause, in uh, the wake of the financial crisis, would cause inflation. There are people who thought that the Fed needed to preempt inflation in the 2016 uh, period. I was on the opposite side of all of those arguments for reasons that were specific to those moments so I am not a person who easily sees inflation. But I do recognize historical patterns. We had a moment when the country had vast ambitions to do many, many different things. When the nation's economic leaders were seized with social concern and believed that a strong, high-pressured economy would produce enormous social benefits. We had a a moment when inflation was not in the historical memory of the policy uh, community and it was believed that inflation was inherently sluggish because of the nature of technological uh, progress. We had a moment when it was believed that um, we could contain any inflation that developed and what we absolutely must not do is tolerate any economic slack. That moment was 1966. Our error then was to try to fight Vietnam and have a great society at the same time and to maintain relatively moderate interest rates as we did that. The biggest difference between 1966 and the way the economy is likely to be towards the end of this year on consensus projections is that in 1966, the expansionary fiscal policies represented about 2% of GDP rather than about 13% of GDP. The second biggest difference is that in 1966, the Federal Reserve chairman was recognizing inflation as a substantial risk. Rather than dismissing it as a risk, the third biggest difference was that in 1966, we had a dollar that was pegged and was not susceptible to a downward fluctuation in the immediate run, though it was five years later, um, if foreigners lost confidence in the prudence of uh, the macroeconomic Uh, environment. This is fiscal policy on a different scale, monetary policy on a different uh, scale, currency risk on a different scale than uh, those episodes. People argued then, as they constantly do today, that inflation is inherently sluggish and that if it happens, it can be dealt with. The United States went from a price stability country with inflation in the 2% range in 1966 to a seriously inflationary country with inflation above 6% just three years later in 1969, before there were any supply shocks, before there was any substantial, after there were efforts, the 1968 uh, surcharge and so forth to contain the incipient uh, inflation. I see the pattern repeating itself. There are no certainties, I could be wrong. It could be that somehow challenging the economy with strong demand will expand its potential. More than I imagine, or more than rigorous statistical evaluations from the past suggest, that could well happen. It could be that most of the money that's being spent by the government will be saved by households, in which case one has to ask what the point of it is, but the overheating uh, will be reduced. It could be that a massive safety valve of increased imports will um, somehow prevent inflation from accelerating, though given that 70% of what people buy is services, that doesn't seem likely uh, to uh, me. These are all real possibilities. And so I am not here to confidently predict that we're gonna have some kind of rapid upsurge in inflation. I am here to say that there is a substantial risk of a significant upsurge in inflation, that that risk is a consequence of our policies, and that our policies are not investments of a kind that are providing a commensurate benefit to make it worth uh, taking uh, the risk. Our policies are um, the emergent consequence, I'm using that in the sort of technical scientific sense of the word emergent, um, of uh, a particular set of political configurations associated with uh, the Georgia election. They do not reflect anybody's calculation of what optimal policy would be except for the calculations of political leaders trying to, in the Congress, trying to include as many elements as possible to satisfy as many constituencies um, as, uh, as possible. So I think we are taking an imprudent and uh, unfortunate uh, risk of both inflation and of crowding out more general policies with what we are doing. Well, thanks because
1: you have brilliantly and anticipated and fully answered my second question, not just my first. So we're going to move on to infrastructure now in the next ten minutes or so. What I'm going to do now is cram both of the infrastructure questions into one, so you can handle them as a package, and then okay. we'll, then we'll move on. And I'll try the, to do it. I'll try to do it more briefly, broader. Okay, so. Here, here are the two prongs of the infrastructure question. Uh, you know, first has to do with, you know, given the fact that we've now shifted the debate from basically relief to sustain consumption to investment to improve future economic uh, prospects. Uh, Senator Tom Carper, who not incidentally now chairs the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, recently remarked that, quote, as a country, we're going to have to start paying for things. If they're worth having, they're worth paying for. Uh, so prong number one, and I'll state prong number two immediately after, is d- with regard to a public investment package, do you agree or disagree with Senator Carper? Uh, prong number two, you know, as you've often, as you've often pointed out, uh, the federal government has not always been terrifically good at targeting you know, public investments where the return on investment is, is high. Uh, sometimes it gets it right, sometimes it, it gets it wrong. So are there any are there any rules that could be legislated or that could be carried out by the executive branch that would improve the odds? that the infrastructure and other public investments would be better than randomly selected to produce a high return?
0: Let me say broadly that I think infrastructure is a perfect issue for no labels because Democrats are basically right that we need more money and Republicans are right that we need to spend it much better. And it's an area where we need to move from the politics of either or to the politics of both and, because the central thrust of both parties on the subject is right. Um, With respect to Senator Carper's uh, doctrine, I would agree with the important aspect that as we say infrastructure has to pay for itself, we should take account of the benefits of infrastructure In terms of expanding the capacity of the economy, raising the tax base, and generating increased revenues, in the same way that we dynamically score uh, tax measures. But the principle that infrastructure investment, certainly starting from where we are now, ought to primarily pay for itself, I think is right. I think there is a case for at moments when the economy has substantial excess capacity. In 2009, I think it was reasonable to think that we could borrow and spend and that the stimulus from the economy would uh, be desirable. But as a general orienting statement, I would uh, be inclined to agree uh, with uh, Senator Carper. Uh, how can the government do it better? I think I am associated with... Uh, Having said in an email that I didn't intend to have uh, leaked, but I'm entirely comfortable with the sentiment, if not the phraseology, uh, for public consumption, the government is a shitty venture capitalist.
1: I cleaned well, it up in my opening remarks. <laughs> right.
0: um, is what I is 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 what I uh, is what I said, and I kind of think I was right. Um, But I think it's kind of important to understand that it's much harder to decide what's gonna be a good solar power innovator than it is to decide that we need to have an air traffic control system that doesn't involve any OCAG bulletin boards. It's much harder to decide which vaccine technologies are good to bet on than it is to uh, decide that medical records shouldn't be kept on paper um, more than a quarter of the way through the 21st uh, century. So I think it's important to emphasize that a lot of the choices in infrastructure, basically to maintain it right, are not profoundly difficult ones, point one. Point two, it has always struck me as ironic that in socialist Europe, roughly all the airports are owned by the private sector. And in capitalist America, roughly all the airports are owned by the public sector. And so I think there is a substantial case for more private involvement uh, in uh, infrastructure. And I think if you can't get the private sector involved, you should be asking yourself, um, are there big externalities here? And if yes, then that's the way it is. You can't get the private sector involved. But if there aren't big externalities here, maybe it isn't such a great idea. And I think, for example, if that test had been applied to the California high-speed rail project that was in the Obama 2009 stimulus bill, a bit of stupidity would have been avoided. Um, (laughs) So I think that um, seeking private sector involvement and user payments is, I think, an important approach to thinking about infrastructure that would lead to better target, that would lead to better targeting and better strategy. I am confused about, not confu- I'm not confused, I am uncertain about what I think about process reforms around earmarks. On the one hand, there's a lot of waste around earmarks. Um, on the other hand, earmark projects are grease that overcome opposition and help build coalitions and we need more Greece and more coalitions. So there may be a higher truth um, that uh, earmarks or some earmarks are kind of okay. And I'm kind of, so I'm uncertain uh, where I come down on process reform. I think there's craziness in the world of um, citing review and uh, approval. Uh, My favorite example is um, the bridge that connects Cambridge and Boston along the Harvard campus that some number of you have, I'm sure, uh, walked across. That bridge is 360 feet long. It needed to be repaired. I'm not absolutely certain it didn't need to be repaired, but a judgment was made that it needed to be repaired. Traffic on one lane was closed for 62 months as a consequence of that. To put that in perspective, Patton spanned a span of the Rhine eight to 10 times as long with a bridge that was built in one day. In fact, I checked with the Harvard Classics Department, and I learned that Julius Caesar built a bridge seven times as long in nine days, rather than uh, 5.2 years. And so we, there are lots of examples like this, the New York subway, First Avenue subway costs seven times as much per kilometer. To build as that paragon of efficiency, France spent building uh, its uh, metro. So there's, uh, so I would say, managerial uh, efficiency around siting, more emphasis on low cost in procurement, generalized involvement of the private sector, and focus on user fees, and um, blocking and tackling before you throw the long ball. The most important infrastructure investments are the ones that are unnameable. They are fixing the potholes in the roads. They are causing more than half of the country's chemistry labs and high schools to not have defective HVAC systems and so forth. And if we concentrate on the blocking and tackling uh, infrastructure investments rather than the press release, name after a political figure, infrastructure investments, that will also guide us towards better allocation of resources.
1: Well, thanks, Larry. You've given a lot people of uh, people like me and you who are interested in infrastructure a lot to think about as we think about this bill we are not out of questions. We are certainly not out of my questions, uh, but we are out of time. Uh, so I just want to close by thanking you, Larry. We don't want to presume, but we hope that as other important questions emerge and you weigh in on them, that we might perhaps uh, have the pleasure of your company from time to time again.
0: I would be uh, I would be delighted. I think um, your group, uh, Builds an important uh, niche in our national uh, life. And I am very much admiring of uh, those who support it and uh, those who lead it. Thank you very and much.
1: And with that exchange, we're adjourned. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan
0: group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break on No Labels Podcast.